At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This is Make It Plain. Mark Thompson. Folks, we've not been to school in some time um, around a subject that uh, historically has been, what well, I shouldn't say historically, academically was most challenging for me when I was in college. I wish he were my professor back then. Um, former chair of the economics department at Howard University. He is also uh, still on the faculty there, of course. Uh, he was assistant secretary of labor from 2009 to 2012. We had a lot of conversations back in those days together. Uh, and also uh, now he is the chief economist for the AFL-CIO. So we wanted to check in with him and we uh, promised to get back to doing this on a more regular basis if his time permits, because we always benefit from his knowledge and his erudition. William Spriggs joins us now. Dr. Spriggs, good to see you again, man. Yeah, it's been good to see, it's good to see you and, and had a chance to chat earlier. Um, I'm happy to see you again. Yes, sir, yes, sir, it is a pleasure. So now, um, first of all, uh, let's talk a little bit about what I think is on everyone's mind, and obviously that is the economy and inflation. Um, the White House, uh, particularly blaming gas prices on Putin, but more generally, what about inflation? What actually is causing that? I've had others explain to me that it's actually a side effect of the swiftness of the recovery since COVID? Not really. Um, it, it's a combination of things, but the biggest being that there's a shortage um, being caused in a number of areas because of COVID. So 
to, to put it in perspective, the last time we disrupted global trade anywhere near this scale, you'd have to go to World War II. That's the only time when you had this global phenomenon of every country being impacted and having difficulty in making goods and then shipping the goods. And this, the, the simple thing is once you start creating shortages, then they have ripple effects that go out. So a lot of people want to say it's the speed of the recovery, but that isn't it. Let's take the biggest single factor in inflation, which are things related to automobiles. Mm -hmm. So when February of 2020 hit, the economy just came to a stop. Uh, auto production continued for a little while, and then as so many auto workers were getting ill, the uh, UAW, the United Auto Workers, um, stopped production and had to reach agreement with the manufacturers. What's the safe way for us to show up to work? But people staying at home, of course, meant they weren't going to car dealerships. Um, and so they weren't buying cars either. And the combination of stopping production plus this tremendous drop in demand was that the, the auto industry slacked up on the chips that now make cars work. You know, our cars are no, no longer mechanical. They are now um, electronic. So like, you know, the, those of us who are our age remember carburetors, <laughs> but they don't make carburetors anymore because there's a chip that regulates the airflow and the air mix, and that's part of how we get higher gas mileage. So, so these electronic controls, they're, they're as fundamental as the carburetor was, right? I mean, you know, those of us who are older, if you said you can have a carburetor, then you can say, well, you can't have an engine. <laughs> because that's how they work. So they slowed up their demand for chips. At the same time, everybody's going online and all of the computer companies are like, we have to have chips, right? Everybody needed more modems, universities, public school systems, companies are all ramping up their demand for doing things remotely. And the result is the auto industry got outbid for outstanding contracts that tended to be short-term in nature for getting chips, which like I just explained, no chips, no engine. So when everybody realized, hey, I'm not losing my job, plus I have this $1,000 stimulus check, a lot of people went out and when it cars, the auto industry went to ramp up production, but then quickly found out we don't have any chips. And auto production after resuming using what was an inventory collapsed. Uh, auto production dropped by 60%. Now to put in perspective, when we had the General Motors strike a couple of years ago, not that long ago, um, auto production did not drop 60%. So, so we're talking about something that's unprecedented. 
60% fewer cars are being made. That's almost like blowing up Detroit. So the, the, the result is you don't have cars in the marketplace. So back to the econ course that everybody took, that means the supply curve at every possible price is now shifted left because the, it, 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 the, the companies can't make as many cars as they used to make for a given, for a given price. They, they were lacking the key part that lets them finish the car. So the supply curve shifts to the left. And then in those old examples you were given in class, demand stays the same, supply shifts to the left, price goes up and fewer cars get sold. Now here's the other part of the lesson. This is the part where people normally didn't do well in class. What happens when the price goes up for a new car? Well, that means demand for a substitute, something that would be close to a car. I go to, I go to buy a car and they tell me it's gonna cost 12% more, which is about what happened to the price of cars, new cars. I can't afford that, but I want a car. Okay, I buy a used car. So now the demand curve, not the supply curve, right? The demand curve shifts for used cars. It shifts out, it goes to the right. And this is the type of inflation that people are used to. Demand suddenly surges. And if demand surges, that's what we normally think about as that's inflation. Too many people demanding a product whose supply is fixed. So the price of used cars goes up. So we have the price of new cars went up, the price of new cars goes up. So of the two percentage points that comes from autos, roughly speaking, 0.4 of those two points comes from new car prices. 1.6 of those points comes from used car prices. And then the rest of us who go, wow, I can't afford a new car. I can't afford a used car. So I guess I got to fix the car I've got. Because <laughs> at least, you know, maybe I'll I wouldn't normally have spent $500, but I don't have the money for the new or the used car at this world price. So now what happens to the demand for parts? Well, the demand for parts gets shifted out because that's the other substitute. If I can't buy a new car, I buy a used car, I fix my old car. So that's the rest of the percentage points that comes from cars. Now we're up over two, a little over two points of the 7.9 points of inflation. Just that. More MIP after this message. Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save money on your insurance? 
Of course you would. After all, who wouldn't love a great deal, right? And when it comes to great rates on insurance for all of the things in your life, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners, condo, or renters coverage. You could save even more with a special discount when you bundle your coverages. Plus, add the easy-to-use Geico mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance, and more. And choosing to switch to Geico becomes an easy choice. Switch to and see all the ways you could save with great rates and discounts. It's easy. Simply go to geico.com to get a rate quote or contact your local agent and get started seeing how much you could save. And so you see from the way I was laying it out, a shortage of one product doesn't just increase prices in that one product. It increased prices in all the substitutes. And of course, cars are a big part of the index, so that matters. But did just multiply that out times everything we had shortages for. If you went to shelves and you're trying to make your favorite macaroni and cheese because your family's coming over, you found out it was hard to find macaroni. Why? Because we had a very wet season in the upper Midwest, where the kind of wheat grows that's used for making pasta. Well, <laughs> you're out of luck. You can't find the macaroni you wanted. So the, that shifts. Now I got to do something different because we can't have macaroni and cheese. Or I get priced out of it or I can't find it. So, you know, you got to go to plan B. So, you know, maybe it's uh, potato salad <laughs> that I'm going to put on the table. Now I've shifted out demand for potatoes. So, so there are these ripple effects that have been caused by these shortages. If you look at it from the company's perspective, the same thing is going on. They had a set of suppliers because those suppliers were the cheapest suppliers and they provided large numbers of parts. Now the auto industry has a dilemma. The people they were going to and getting the chips say, we don't have any. So that means I have to go find another chip manufacturer that I had rejected before because they were a higher price. But if I wanna make cars, that's where I have to go to. So, all of these things ripple. And if we had no stimulus, if we had had no American Rescue Plan, you would still have had these shortages. In the case of oil, everybody was staying home initially, or not everybody. We know that Black people were still going to work because we had essential work. But about a third of the American workforce was staying at home commuting stopped, price of oil collapsed because not just in the United States, this is a global phenomenon, right? Not just the United States, Europe had more severe shutdowns than we did. They seriously weren't on the road. So what happens to the oil producers? Suddenly their prices collapsed. They're losing money. They take offline any marginal supply, anything that isn't cheap, they shut it down. Now the economy picks back up. So this is where people are telling the story. 
it's the surge in demand. But it's the surge in demand not relative to normal demand. It's the surge in demand relative to what companies did initially and their response by shutting down production. Not because we're not capable of producing. And so you want to differentiate between inflation where it's above capacity. You're demanding what could never be produced. We could produce the oil that at the level we were producing it before. We just need the oil companies to bring back online these supplies that were marginal, but these companies are wary of doing that because it's expensive. A problem when the Fed says we want to slow down the economy is it it sends a signal to those companies. I don't know if you want to do that. <laughs> you're going to spend money. You're going to bring them back online. And then what happens? The price starts to fall. And then those marginal supplies, you're losing money off of them. And in the midst of those adjustments, which were putting pressures on prices as they were coming back up. See, nobody ever talks about when prices fall. The price of oil fell, and nobody was going like, wow, this is really great. Price of oil fell. And we're talking about prices relative to a point in time. So, okay, prices have risen relative to February and May and June of 2020. But now we have this other crisis, which is brought about because of Russia's war against Ukraine. And it's a global marketplace. So it isn't simply what does the U.S. do? If you take oil out of the global supply, then everybody else is scrambling trying to find oil. So the U.S. is a major producer of oil. And a lot of people say, well, we didn't buy from Russia. We'll buy from the United States. We're not the only ones who use oil in the world. And so even though the U.S. is boycotting Russian oil, and there are other countries that are doing it, that means I got to, we need more oil from Venezuela, more oil from Nigeria. Everybody's going after the current suppliers who are left. And so that's going to bid up the price. Ukraine is the market basket of Europe. It is a country, it and land, and, and land size, Ukraine is the largest country in Europe. And it has soil that is similar to our breadbasket of the Midwest. So it's the most productive region. And their farms are similar to American farms when you think about wheat and corn and sunflowers. They, they farm big acreage, like in the United States. It's not little peasant farms. These are thousand acre farms, just like in the United States. So you take them offline. And again, we're not the only people in the world who eat wheat or soybean or corn or use seed flour oil and baking. So the, the price of wheat is going to go up because people can't get it from Ukraine. The price of corn is going to go up, which means the price of beef goes up, which means the price of hogs and pork go up, which means the price of bacon goes up, 
And so, you know, the Republicans have made hay out of this and tried to say, oh, we overstimulated the economy. This is why we didn't vote for the America Rescue Plan. It gave too much money to the American people. Think of how remarkable a sale job that is. I'm actually telling you, you have too much money. And that's Joe Biden's fault. And the reason why you are now suffering from inflation is because Joe Biden gave you too much money. More MIP after this message. So we also have been seeing um, some job recovery. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts about that? But also we've seen this new phenomenon called the Great Resignation. Um, love to your thoughts about both of those people coming back to work, but then some folk decided, you know, I'm either going to leave or do something different. What, what do you think about that? Well, the rescue plan, and this is the criticism, put so much money in people's hands that they are able to navigate around these, um, excuse me for a second that they're able to navigate around these price shocks for what I was saying, right? I can't afford this, but I have enough money that I can solve that problem by buying something else. When I go to the marketplace and I say I can't buy, you know, um, one thing but i'm going to buy another well the demand for that other thing when it goes up means that that employer has to hire more people so like what i was saying if if general motors couldn't buy steel from their china source then they come to the united states and there's some steel supplier and they say we need steel we can't get it from where we used to get it and you give me a big order from General Motors, that means I got to go hire more workers. And so this recovery has allowed us to continue to demand, to navigate around these constraints. And the result is we are bouncing back in terms of demand. As we get the disease under better control, people are feeling a lot more comfortable about going to restaurants they're feeling a lot more comfortable about going to nail salons, about getting their hair cut, about going to barbershops, beauty salons, about going to the gymnasium. And so the, the, the downturn in employment that took place, particularly among restaurants, is rebounding back at a fast clip. And so we were on a quick pace in the last couple of months so that somewhere around September or October, we would be back to the level of employment we had in February of 2020, which would be a good thing. It's two years later, but remember, we didn't get back to the employment level from the Great Recession. Um, it took us until eight years just about seven years or it takes about six or seven years. And that's a lot of pain for a lot of people. 
a whole lot of people. I mean, I don't have a job. There are a lot of people left jobless because you simply don't even have the same number of jobs that you did years before. So, so we were on path for that. That was a good thing. A number of states in response to whining from business dramatically cut their unemployment insurance systems. And without federal support, they have forced people to look for a job while they are employed. So it isn't really the great quit. When you, when you look across the spectrum, states with the lowest unemployment benefits, the ones that force you to look while you have a job. So, I mean, the benefits in some states are as low as $100, $150 a week, $200 a week. So, so you're telling me take a job, any job, because otherwise you're not going to make it. Well, those states have the highest quit rates because you're forcing me to look for a job while I'm employed. So, of course, I don't, it's not a job I want, it's a job I have to take. So, they have high quit rates. The states with the highest unemployment benefits, and we're talking about a huge range here, um, some states you get, you know, close to $400 a week, $500 a week. Well, in those states, people tend to take a job, they tend to look for a job while they're unemployed. So when they take a job, they don't quit. This is the job, I was looking for this job, I found it, thank you, this is the job I wanted. So it's not the great quit, it's really the great job mismatch. That's the number one variable. Second most important variable is in 21 states, we're raising the minimum wage. 21 states in January raised their minimum wage. And many people have not been paying attention to this because they they try to portray that low-wage workers are hurt when we you know get to full employment. It's bad for them. But their wages have been going up by 10%, way above inflation. But whenever you raise the minimum wage, then you're going to get a lot of quitting taking place because the let's let's take um, uh, Missouri, as an example, which is a conservative red state, they they raised their minimum wage um, to ten something an hour from nine. So, if I was working for say nine fifty an hour, and suddenly everybody's going to get ten twenty five an hour, I'm going to look at my employer going, I was getting above the minimum wage. And so, yeah, I mean, I enjoy this higher wage, but you didn't raise my wage. This is now the minimum wage. If I just walk out the street, I get this wage. So what are you going to do? Are you going to give me a boost? Or are you just going to tell me, hey, go walk? Or if I go to another employer, they may say, oh, you have experience. I'll pay you $11 an hour since the minimum is ten twenty-five. And so a lot of that goes on when you raise the minimum wage because some firms uniformly raise everybody's wage. And some firms, you just get wage compression. They'll just push up the bottom wage. Um, and, and so it starts a training process. People start looking, people get upset <laughs> because they don't like the shift in equity 
from their perspective, um, you know, relative to somebody who just walks in the door and and their own and their sense of themselves, right, changes because they know they now understand, right? I can do better than this, so I will. So part of it is we're raising the minimum wage in a large number of states, over half American workers are in states like that. And then this other part is you start these mean, stingy states that are starving people to work. Uh, that's interesting. I, I like the way you phrase that, the great resignation or uh, the great job um, mismatch. Mm -hmm. um, what impact, if any, is organized labor having we know organized labor fought for the increase in the minimum wage but in terms of people um coming back to work finding the jobs that they want what what's kind of role is organized labor having these days if if any i think a great deal the number one is we really have been succeeding in the fight to raise the minimum wage. And even in states with low union density, we've made these victories. Virginia, Florida have both been on this path to higher minimum wages despite being right to work states and despite having very low union density. We're winning that, that fight through very effective um, organizing by some union union leadership that's fighting above its weight. I'm very proud of the Virginia AFL-CIO for all the labor victories that they've won and now inspiring workers who got a clear message from their employers during COVID, you're expendable. You know, if, if you die, that just means you just bring in somebody else. And that harsh reality has meant a different calculus, I think, in many people's minds about, do I think of my boss as this benign, wonderful person who's just, you know, this paternalistic um, savior? And if I raise my voice, I'm going against that. Or do I need to protect myself? And workers who aren't in unions have found the labor movement helping them out. And so it's increased the visibility of the movement and increased people's sense, I can get help. The labor movement isn't just a bunch of stodgy people sitting over there for their own benefit. Um, this is something that can help me too. So um, I think that's the transition that's going on. I mean, you know, again, even in a low union density state like Virginia, we have active campaigns going on to organize workers at Starbucks. And, and we have that going on in North Carolina as well. Everybody knows the recount and Alabama's going on for the Amazon workers. Um, th this has caught people's imagination. They understand there is a way to fight back. And I think it's, it's great for everybody that this realization has come. And it's a, great, it's a great education for everybody. When you look at what Starbucks has been doing and firing union organizers throughout the country, 
it's it should be clear to everybody <laughs> if i'm willing to do all this to keep you from having something then you better have it <laughs> that's right it just like like voting rights too exactly you exactly people yes yeah exactly if, if i'm willing to do everything to keep you from voting that must mean it's important because <laughs> otherwise i just let you do it right i mean Y'all want guns? Sure, you can have guns. Shoot each other up. I don't care. You want to vote? Oh, wait, wait, wait. No, nope. time, time out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah. No, voting, no. Shooting each other up, yes. Voting, no. And and folks, the AFL-CIO uh, figured greatly. They were a big part of the march from Selma to Montgomery as well, week before last. And we're appreciative of, of that also. Organized labor, civil rights have always been in lockstep we want to continue that relationship and remain as much in lockstep as possible i just want to say this quickly before we wrap what bill is saying is important everything he said is important but again if someone is trying to take something from you that means that means they understand its value not only that you know there are those who are saying and this goes for union organizing well, that doesn't matter anymore. I don't need to be in the union. And uh, even they're even those saying, Bill, well, the Democrats really haven't done much for me, so I don't need to vote. But I'm, I'm t this is a good point, y'all. If people were really convinced that no one was doing enough for us to vote, they wouldn't try to take the, the vote away. They're still trying to take it away because what they want to do as an alternative mm -hmm. is even worse. Uh, than what the Democrats are not doing enough of. And are people doing enough of what they ought to be doing? No, we know this. But the alternative is far worse. And, and Bill, I've also been reminding people lately, Roe was in 1973. We're coming on, up on 50 years. Roe's opponents never stopped. Because they weren't able to return overturn Roe in 74 and 75, they did not stop. And now 50 years later, they're on the cusp of overturning Roe. That is what, so the pro-lifers are applying what, Frederick Douglass said that we don't apply eternal vigilance. <laughs> but lastly, um, we've got finally an African-American woman nominated to the Supreme Court. Now, a lot of focus on a lot of issues, but one thing I've always noticed is that Supreme Court hearings rarely focus on economics and commerce. But I know that many, if not the majority of cases, that come before the court are not necessarily civil rights cases, but cases that have to do with ec the economy mm -hmm. and, and commerce. Can you talk to us about that and maybe give us some context for these hearings, what we probably won't hear about, but from your point of view, why these are issues that, and a, and a line of, of approaching this Supreme Court economy and commerce that we ought to pay a little bit more attention to. Absolutely. And it's why many of us were happy this was the nominee. Um, some people who have been nominated uh, have worked for strong anti-union and corporate firms. A lot of the questions that come before the court are corporate power issues, issues of forced arbitration which a lot of people are finding out a lot more about because they 
don't pay attention to the fine print in any of their contracts and they just sign them and i'll just use one example that came up here uh, in this area a woman got her car fixed at um an oil lube company and they did something wrong with oil painting which cracked and she then went to sue them saying you cracked my oil pan. They had in the fine print, well, you have to go to arbitration. You can't sue us. And the arbitrator was chosen by the law firm that represents that company. <laughs> so so they, they, their lawyer chooses who the arbitrator is going to be. That's the kind of thing that comes before the Supreme Court. And that affects our everyday lives when we take the balance out of our system and keep tilting it towards corporations. Those are the kind of things that show up. Whether you can pursue um, massive claims, whether you can have the kind of suit that plaintiff's attorneys like to bring, where they'll do a class action the Supreme Court decides whether class actions can be brought and under what conditions. But for most of us, the only way we can fight a big corporation is by combining forces, not by me going up against Google and saying, I'm suing Google because I wanted to protect my data and I think they're profiting too much off my data. Me against Google, that's that's not David against Goliath. That's a ant versus an elephant so these kind of things that affect workers rights that affect consumer rights that affect the balance of economic activity you have to be as wary of what the court is going to decide having somebody who was a public defender and i mean getting back to the issues of, of, of rights and so therefore knows all the things that prosecutors do to undermine the liberties of defendants, which is like huge. That, that's going to be a big difference as well. Um, so I, I, I think on many dimensions, this hearing is going to be important. And having a person who came from a public perspective sat on the sentencing commission. So understands the inequality and injustice built into how we do sentencing on top of having defended people publicly. Having somebody who, who came from their law experience from the public view and not from the corporate view is just huge. It's, it's really important for the rest of us on things that affect our lives every day i mean you know because a lot of people say oh i don't get called the n-word every day okay but you buy a car you sign a contract every day you do something every i mean and those everything everyday things matter there's a transaction our lives are transactional everything we do is transactional william spriggs folks former assistant secretary of labor Howard University economics professor, currently chief economist for 
the AFL-CIO, while he's still teaching at Howard, too, we applaud him for that. He's remained faithful to one of our HBCUs. We're going to be talking to Bill Spriggs more often in this year as things go by and as we look more closely at economic issues, jobs, and whatnot. Bill Spriggs, thank you, brother. Well, I hope that was helpful and didn't make people too crazy. <laughs> no, not at all. Again, this is class. We 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 get to learn. We on the come up. We're trying to learn some stuff here. So, Bill Spriggs, everybody. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. Please remember to listen, like, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please give the show a five star rating, and please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.